Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Chapter 3 her thus turning her back on me was fortunately not for my just preoccupations a snub that could check the growth of our mutual esteem. We met, after I had brought home little Miles, more intimately than ever on the ground of my stupefaction, my general emotion, so monstrous was I then ready to pronounce it that such a child as had now been revealed to me should be under an interdict. I was a little late on the scene. And I felt, as he stood wistfully looking out for me before the door of the inn at which the coach had put him down, that I had seen him, on the instant, without and within, in the great glow of freshness, the same positive fragrance of purity in which I had, from the first moment, seen his little sister. He was incredibly beautiful, and Mrs. Gross had put her finger on it. Everything but a sort of passion of tenderness for him was swept away by his presence. When I then and there took him to my heart, for it was something divine that I have never found to the same degree in any child, his indescribable little air of knowing nothing in the world but love, it would have been impossible to carry a bad name with a greater sweetness of innocence, and by the time I had got back to bligh with him, I remained merely bewildered, so far, that is, as I was not outraged, by the sense of the horrible letter locked up in my room in a drawer. As soon as I could compass a private word with Mrs. Gross, I declared to her that it was grotesque. She promptly understood me. You mean the cruel charge? It doesn't live an instant, my dear woman. Look at him. She smiled at my pretension to have discovered his charm. I assure you, miss, I do nothing else. What will you say, then? She immediately added. In answer to the letter, I had made up my mind. Nothing. And to his uncle? I was incisive. Nothing. And to the boy himself? I was wonderful. Nothing. She gave with her apron a great wipe to her mouth. Then I'll stand by you. We'll see it out. We'll see it out, I ardently echoed, giving her my hand to make it a vow. She held me there a moment, then whisked up her apron again with her detached hand. Would you mind, miss, if I used the freedom to kiss me? No. I took the good creature in my arms, and after we had embraced like sisters, felt still more fortified and indignant. This, at all events, was for the time, a time so full that, as I recall the way it went, reminds me of all the art I need now to make it a little distinct. What I looked back at with amazement is the situation I accepted. I had undertaken with my companion to see it out, and I was under a charm, apparently, that could smooth away the extent and the far and difficult connections of such an effort. I was lifted aloft on a great wave of infatuation and pity. I found it simple, in my ignorance, my confusion, and perhaps my conceit, to assume that I could deal with a boy whose education for the world was all on the point of beginning. I am unable even to remember at this day what proposal I framed for the end of his holidays and the resumption of his studies. Lessons with me, indeed, that charming summer, we all had a theory that he was to have, but... I now feel that for weeks the lessons must have been rather my own. I learned something, at first, certainly, that had not been one of the teachings of my small, smothered life, learned to be amused and even amusing, and not to think for the morrow. It was the first time in a manner that I had known space and air and freedom, 
all the music of summer and all the mystery of nature. And then there was a consideration. And consideration was sweet. Oh, it was a trap, not designed, but deep to my imagination, to my delicacy, perhaps to my vanity, to whatever in me was most excitable. The best way to picture it all is to say that I was off my guard. They gave me so little trouble. They were of a gentleness so extraordinary. I used to speculate, but even this with a dim disconnectedness, as to how the rough future, for all futures are rough, would handle them and might bruise them. They had the bloom of health and happiness, and yet, as if I had been in charge of a pair of little grandees, of princes of the blood, for whom everything to be right would have to be enclosed and protected, the only form that in my fancy the after years could take for them was that of a romantic, a really royal extension of the garden and the park. It may be, of course, above all, that what suddenly broke into this gives the previous time a charm of stillness, that hush in which something gathers or crouches. The change was actually like the spring of a beast. In the first weeks, the days were long. They often, at their finest, gave me what I used to call my own hour, the hour when, for my pupils, tea time and bedtime having come and gone, I had, before my final retirement, a small interval alone. Much as I liked my companions, this hour was the thing in the day I liked most, and I liked it best of all when, as the light faded, or rather, I should say, the day lingered, and the last calls of the last birds sounded, in a flushed sky from the old trees, I could take a turn into the grounds and enjoy almost with a sense of property that amused and flattered me, the beauty and dignity of the place. It was a pleasure at these moments to feel myself tranquil and justified, doubtless perhaps also to reflect that by my discretion, my quiet good sense and general high propriety, I was giving pleasure, if he ever thought of it, to the person to whose pressure I had responded. What I was doing was what he had earnestly hoped and directly asked of me, and that I could, after all, do it, proved even a greater joy than I had expected. I dare say I fancied myself, in short, a remarkable young woman, and took comfort in the faith that this would more publicly appear. Well, I needed to be remarkable to offer a front to the remarkable things that presently gave their first sign. It was plump one afternoon in the middle of my very hour. The children were tucked away, and I had come out for my stroll. One of the thoughts that, as I don't in the least shrink now from noting, used to be with me in these wanderings, that it would be as charming as a charming story to suddenly meet someone. Someone would appear there at the turn of the path, and would stand before me and smile and approve. I didn't ask more than that. I only asked that he should know, and the only way to be sure he knew would be to see it, and the kind light of it, in his handsome face. That was exactly present to me, by which I mean the face was, when, on the very first of the occasions, at the end of a long June day, I stopped short on emerging from one of the plantations, and coming into view of the house. What arrested me on the spot, and with a shock much greater than any vision had allowed for, was the sense that my imagination had, in a flash, turned real. He did stand, but high up, beyond the lawn, and the very top of the tower to which on that first morning little Flora had conducted me. This tower was one of a pair, 
square, incongruous, crenellated structures that were distinguished for some reason, though I could see little difference, as the new and the old. They flanked opposite ends of the house and were probably architectural absurdities, redeemed in a measure indeed by not being wholly disengaged nor of a height too pretentious, dating in their gingerbread antiquity from a romantic revival that was already a respectable past. I admired them, had fancies about them, for we could all profit in a degree, especially when they loomed through the dusk by the grandeur of their actual battlements. Yet it was not at such an elevation that the figure I had so often invoked seemed most in place. It produced in me this figure, in the clear twilight I remember, two distinct gasps of emotion, which were sharply the shock of my first and that of my second surprise. My second was a violent perception of the mistake of my first. The man who met my eyes was not the person I had precipitately supposed. There came to me thus a bewilderment of vision of which, after these years, there is no living view that I can hope to give. An unknown man in a lonely place is a permitted object of fear to a young woman privately bred, and the figure that faced me was, a few more seconds assured me, as little anyone else I knew as it was the image that had been in my mind. I had not seen it in Harley Street. I had not seen it anywhere. The place, moreover, in the strangest way in the world, had, on the instant, and by the very fact of its appearance, come a solitude, to me at least, making my statement here with the deliberation with which I have never made it, the whole feeling of the moment returns. It was as if, while I took in what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again, as I write, the intense hush in which the sounds of evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost, for the minute, all its voice. But there was no other change in nature, unless indeed it were a change that I saw with a stranger sharpness. The gold was still in the sky, the clearness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. That's how I thought with extraordinary quickness of each person, that he might have been, and that he was not. We were confronted across our distance quite long enough for me to ask myself with intensity who then he was, and to feel, as an effect of my inability to say, a wonder that in a few instants more became intense. The great question, or one of these, is afterward, I know, with regard to certain matters, the question of how long they have lasted. Well, this is a matter of mine, think what you will of it. Lasted while I caught with a dozen possibilities, none of which made a difference for the better, that I could see, in their having been in the house, and for how long, above all, a person of whom I was in ignorance. It lasted while I just bridled a little, with the sense that my office demanded that there should be no such ignorance and no such person. It lasted while this visitant, at all events, and there was a touch of the strange freedom, as I remember, in the sign of familiarity of his wearing no hat, seemed to fix me from his position, with just the question, just the scrutiny through the fading light that his own presence provoked. We were too far apart to call to each other, but there was a moment at which, at shorter range, some challenge between us breaking the hush 
would have been the right result of our straight mutual stare. He was in one of the angles, the one away from the house, very erect as it struck me, and with both hands on the ledge. So I saw him as I see the letters I form on this page then, exactly, after a minute, as if to add to the spectacle, he slowly changed his place, passed, looking at me hard all the while, to the opposite corner of the platform. Yes, I had the sharpest sense that during this transit he never took his eyes from me, and I can see at this moment the way his hand, as he went, passed from one of the crenellations to the next. He stopped at the other corner, but less long, and even as he turned away, still markedly fixed me. He turned away. That was all I knew. Chapter 4 It was not that I didn't wait on this occasion for more, for I was rooted as deeply as I was shaken. Was there a secret at Bly, a mystery of Adolfo, or an insane and unmentionable relative kept in unsuspected confinement? I can't say how long I turned it over, or how long, in the confusion of curiosity and dread, I remained where I had had my collision. I only recall that when I re-entered the house, darkness had quite closed in. Agitation, in the interval, certainly had held me and driven me, for I must, in circling about the place, have walked three miles. But I was to be, later on, so much more overwhelmed that this mere dawn of alarm was a comparatively human chill. The most singular part of it, in fact, singular as the rest had been, was the part I became, in the hall, aware of in meeting Mrs. Gross. This picture comes back to me in the general train. The impression, as I received it on my return, of the wide, white, panelled space, bright in the lamplight, and with its portrait and red carpet, and of the good, surprised look of my friend, which immediately told me she had missed me. It came to me straight away under her contact, that, with plain heartiness, mere relieved anxiety at my appearance, she knew nothing whatever that could bear upon the incident I had there ready for her. I had not suspected in advance that her comfortable face would pull me up, and I somehow measured the importance of what I had seen by my thus finding myself hesitate to mention it. Scarce anything in the whole history seems to me so odd as this fact that my real beginning of fear was one, as I may say, with the instinct of sparing my companion. On the spot, accordingly, in the pleasant hall, and with her eyes on me, I, for a reason that I couldn't then have phrased, achieved an inward resolution, offered a vague pretext for my lateness, and with the plea of the beauty of the night and of the heavy dew and wet feet, went as soon as possible to my room. Here it was another affair. For many days after, it was a queer affair enough. There were hours from day to day, or at least there were moments snatched even from clear duties, when I had to shut myself up to think. It was not so much yet that I was more nervous than I could bear to be, as that I was remarkably afraid of becoming so, for the truth I had now to turn over was, simply and clearly, the truth that I could arrive at no account whatever of the visitor with whom I had been so inexplicably, and yet, as it seemed to me, so intimately concerned. It took little time to see that I could sound without forms of inquiry and without exciting remark any domestic complications. The shock I had suffered must have sharpened all my senses. I felt sure at the end of three days 
and as the result of mere closer attention, that I had not been practised upon by the servants nor made the object of any game. Of whatever it was that I knew, nothing was known around me. There was but one sane inference. Someone had taken a liberty rather gross. That was what repeatedly I dipped into my room and locked the door to say to myself. We had been collectively subject to an intrusion. Some unscrupulous traveller, curious in old houses, had made his way in unobserved, enjoyed the prospect from the best point of view, and then stolen out as he came. If he had given me such a bold, hard stare, that was but a part of his indiscretion. The good thing, after all, was that we should surely see no more of him. This was not so good a thing, I admit, as not to leave me to judge that what essentially made nothing else much signify was simply my charming work. My charming work was just my life with Miles and Flora, and through nothing could I so like it as through feeling that I could throw myself into it in trouble. The attraction of my small charges was a constant joy, leading me to wonder afresh at the vanity of my original fears. The distaste I had begun by entertaining for the probable grey prose of my office. There was to be no grey prose, it appeared, and no long grind. So how could work not be charming that presented itself as daily beauty? It was all the romance of the nursery and the poetry of the schoolroom. I don't mean by this, of course, that we studied only fiction and verse. I mean I can express no otherwise the sort of interest my companions inspired. How can I describe that except by saying that instead of growing used to them, and it's a marvel for a governess, I call the sisterhood to witness, I made constant fresh discoveries. There was one direction assuredly in which these discoveries stopped. Deep obscurity continued to cover the region of the boy's conduct at school. It had been promptly given me, I have noted, to face the mystery without a pang. Perhaps even it would be nearer the truth to say that, without a word, he himself had cleared it up. He had made the whole charge absurd. My conclusion bloomed there with the real rose flush of his innocence. He was only too fine and fair for the little horrid unclean school world when he had paid a price for it. I reflected acutely that the sense of such differences, such superiorities of quality always on the part of the majority, which could include even stupid, sordid headmasters, turn infallibly to the vindictive. Both the children had a gentleness, it was their only fault, and it never made Miles a muff, that kept them, how should I express it, almost impersonal and certainly quite unpunishable. They were like the cherubs of the anecdote who had, morally at any rate, nothing to whack. I remember feeling with Miles in a special as if we had had, as it were, no history. We expect of a small child a scant one, but there was in this beautiful little boy something extraordinarily sensitive, yet extraordinarily happy, that more than any creature of his age I have seen struck me as beginning anew each day. He had never for a second suffered. I took this as a direct disproof of his having really been chastised. If he had been wicked, he would have caught it, and I should have caught it by the rebound. I should have found the trace. I found nothing at all, and he was therefore an angel. He never spoke of his school, never mentioned a comrade or a master, and I, for my part, was quite too much disgusted to allude to them. Of course, I was under the spell, 
and the wonderful part is that even at the time I perfectly knew I was, but I gave myself up to it. It was an antidote to any pain, and I had more pains than one. I was in receipt in those days of disturbing letters from home where things were not going well. But with my children, what things in the world mattered? That was the question I used to put to my scrappy retirements. I was dazzled by their loveliness. There was a Sunday to get on when it rained with such force and for so many hours that there could be no procession to church, in consequence of which, as the day declined, I had arranged with Mrs. Gross that should the evening show improvement, we would attend together the late service. The rain happily stopped, and I prepared for our walk, which, through the park and by the good road to the village, would be a matter of twenty minutes. Coming downstairs to meet my colleague in the hall, I remembered a pair of gloves that had required three stitches and that had received them, with a publicity perhaps not edifying, while I sat with the children at their tea, served on Sundays by exception, in that cold, clean temple of mahogany and brass, the grown-up dining room. The gloves had been dropped there, and I turned in to recover them. The day was grey enough, but the afternoon light still lingered, and it enabled me, on crossing the threshold, not only to recognise on the chair near the wide window, then closed, the articles I wanted, but to become aware of a person on the other side of the window, and looking straight in. One step into the room had sufficed. My vision was instantaneous. It was all there. The person looking straight in was the person who had already appeared to me. He appeared thus again with, I won't say, greater distinctness, for that was impossible, but with a nearness that represented a forward stride in our intercourse and made me, as I met him, catch my breath and turn cold. He was the same. He was the same. And seen this time, as he had been seen before, from the waist up the window, though the dining room was on the ground floor, not going down to the terrace on which he stood. His face was close to the glass, yet the effect of this better view was strangely only to show me how intense the former had been. He remained but a few seconds, long enough to convince me he also saw and recognised, but it was as if I had been looking at him for years and had known him always. Something, however, happened this time that had not happened before. His stare into my face, through the glass and across the room, was as deep and hard as then. But it quitted me for a moment during which I could still watch it, see it fix successively several other things. On the spot there came to me the added shock of a certitude that it was not for me he had come there. He had come for someone else. The flash of this knowledge, for it was knowledge in the midst of dread, produced in me the most extraordinary effect. Started as I stood there, a sudden vibration of duty and courage. I say courage because I was beyond all doubt already far gone. I bounded straight out of the door again, reached that of the house, got in an instant upon the drive, and passing along the terrace as fast as I could rush, turned the corner and came full in sight. But it was in sight of nothing now. My visitor had vanished. I stopped. I almost dropped with the real relief of this but I took in the whole scene. I gave him time to reappear. I call it time, but how long was it? I can't speak to the purpose today of the duration of these things. That kind of measure must have left me. They couldn't have lasted as they actually appeared to me to last. The terrace and the whole place, the lawn and the garden beyond it, all I could see of the park were empty, with a great emptiness. 
There were shrubberies and big trees, but I remember the clear assurance I felt that none of them concealed him. He was there, or was not there, not there if I didn't see him. I got hold of this, then instinctively, instead of returning as I had come, went to the window. It was confusedly present to me that I ought to place myself where he had stood. I did so. I applied my face to the pane and looked, as he had looked, into the room. As if at this moment to show me exactly what his range had been, Mrs. Gross, as I had done for himself just before, came in from the hall. With this, I had the full image of a repetition of what had already occurred. She saw me as I had seen my own visitant. She pulled up short, as I had done. I gave her something of the shock that I received. She turned white, and this made me ask myself if I had blanched as much. She stared in short and retreated on just my lines, and I knew she had then passed out and come round to me, and that I should presently meet her. I remained where I was, and while I waited, I thought of more things than one. But there's only one I take space to mention. I wondered why she should be scared. Chapter 5 Oh, she let me know as soon as round the corner of the house she loomed again into view. What in the name of goodness is the matter? She was now flushed and out of breath. I said nothing till she came quite near. With me? I must have made a wonderful face. Do I show it? You're white as a sheet. You look awful. I considered I could meet on this without scruple any innocence. My need to respect the bloom of Mrs. Gross's had dropped without a rustle from my shoulders, and if I wavered for the instant it was not with what I kept back. I put out my hand to her and she took it. I held her hard a little, liking to feel her close to me. There was a kind of support in the shy heave of her surprise. You came for me for church, of course, but I can't go. Has anything happened? Yes, you must know now. Did I look very queer? To this window? Dreadful. Well, I said, I've been frightened. Mrs. Gross's eyes expressed plainly that she had no wish to be, yet also that she knew too well her place not to be ready to share with me any marked inconvenience. Oh, it was quite settled that she must share. Just what you saw from the dining room a minute ago was the effect of that. What I saw before was much worse. Her hand tightened. What was it? An extraordinary man looking in. What extraordinary man? I haven't the least idea. Mrs. Gross gazed round us in vain. Then where is he gone? I know still less. Have you seen him before? Yes, once. On the old tower. She could only look at me harder. Do you mean he's a stranger? Oh, very much. Yet you didn't tell me. No, for reasons, but now that you've guessed. Mrs. Gross's round eyes encountered this charge. I haven't guessed, she said very simply. How can I, if you don't imagine? I don't in the very least. You've seen him nowhere but on the tower, and on this spot just now. Mrs. Gross looked round again. What was he doing on the tower? Only standing there and looking down at me. She thought a minute. Was he a gentleman? I found I had no need to think. No. She gazed in deeper wonder. No. Then nobody about the place, nobody from the village. Nobody, nobody. I didn't tell you, but I made sure. She breathed a vague relief. This was, oddly, so much to the good. It only went indeed a little way. But if he isn't a gentleman, what is he? He's a horror. A horror? He's, God help me if I know what he is. 
Mrs. Gross looked round once more. She fixed her eyes on the duskier distance, then, pulling herself together, turned to me with abrupt inconsequence. It's time we should be at church. Oh, I'm not fit for church. Won't it do you good? It won't do them, I nodded at the house. The children, I can't leave them now. You're afraid, I spoke boldly. I'm afraid of him. Mrs. Gross's large face showed me at this, for the first time, a faraway faint glimmer of a consciousness more acute. I somehow made out in it the delayed dawn of an idea I myself had not given her, and that was as yet quite obscure to me. It comes back to me that I thought instantly of this as something I could get from her, and I felt it to be connected with the desire she presently showed to know more. When was it? On the tower. About the middle of the month, uh, at this same hour. Almost at dark, said Mrs. Gross. Oh no, not nearly. I saw him as I see you. Then how did he get in? And how did he get out? I laughed. I had no opportunity to ask him. This evening, you see, I pursued, he has not been able to get in. He only peeps. I hope it'll be confined to that. She had now let go of my hand. She turned away a little. I waited an instant, then I brought out, Go to church. Goodbye. I must watch. Slowly she faced me again. Do you fear for them? We met in another long look. Don't you? Instead of answering, she came nearer to the window and for a minute applied her face to the glass. You see how he could see, I meanwhile went on. She didn't move. How long was he here? Till I came out, I came to meet him. Mrs. Gross at last turned round and there was still more in her face. I couldn't have come out. Neither could I, I laughed again, but I did come. I have my duty. So have I mine, she replied, after which she added, What's he like? I've been dying to tell you, but he's like nobody. Nobody, she echoed. He has no hat. Then seeing in her face that she already in this, with a deeper dismay, found a touch of picture, I quickly added stroke to stroke. He has a red hair, very close, close curling, and a pale face, long in shape, with straight, good features and a little, rather queer whiskers that are as red as his hair. His eyebrows are somehow darker. They look particularly arched, and as if they might move a good deal. His eyes are sharp, strange, awfully, but I only know clearly that they're rather small and very fixed. His mouth's wide and his lips are thin, and except for his little whiskers, he's quite clean-shaven. He gives me a sort of sense of looking like an actor. An actor? It was impossible to resemble one less, at least, than Mrs. Gross at that moment. I've never seen one, but I suppose them. He's tall, active, erect, I continued, but never, no, never a gentleman. My companion's face had blanched as I went on. Her round eyes started, and her mild mouth gaped. A gentleman, she gasped, confounded, stupefied. A gentleman, he. You know him, then? She visibly tried to hold herself. But he's handsome. I saw the way to help her. Remarkably. And dressed? In somebody's clothes. They're smart. But they're not his own. She broke into a breathless affirmative groan. They're the masters. I caught it up. Do you know him? She faltered but a second. Quint, she cried. Quint? Peter Quint, his own man, his valet, when he was here. When the master was. Gaping still but meeting me, she pieced it all together. He never wore his hair, but he did wear, well, there were waistcoats missed. They were both here last year, then the master went, and Quint was alone. I faltered, but halting a little. Alone? Alone, 
with us. Then, as from a deeper depth, in charge, she added. And what became of him? She hung fire so long that I was still more mystified. He went too, she brought out at last. Went where? Her expression at this became extraordinary. God knows where. He died. Died? I almost shrieked. She seemed fairly to square herself, plant herself more firmly to utter the wonder of it. Yes, Mr. Quince is dead. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Somehow. come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Back, you tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How to do the dead come back, today, Mother? What's the secret? Well, that was my second part of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. So uh, I'm not going to say much, actually, because this is quite a long series. Um, I'm, I'm wondering now whether I'm actually going to fit it in with, within five weeks, which is going to take us almost up to Christmas. And I had other things planned for Christmas, but I am enjoying the story, I must admit. Uh, one of the, I've got two things contradictory to say. First of all, James's language is really infuriating. It's really hard to read out loud because what he does is he says something, then he, he, he inserts a, an observation, then he elaborates on that observation, then he, then he uh, elaborates on that observation, then he inserts another observation, then he gets back to, towards his, his main point. So it, it's actually really hard to read out because you're like, oh, right, okay. And, and you just have to work out how you're going to phrase it anyway. Never mind. That's my moaning about it, what I think he's really good at. So I actually, dipping back to my moaning, I suspect he wouldn't have got published these days with that language, but that would have been a shame because the good thing about him is um, he's very modern in the way he writes. He's almost like a Dan Brown of his day. If you ever read um, The um, Da Vinci Code, every short chapter, such as these are, ends with a cliffhanger. So Dan Brown keeps you, there's a kicker, I think journalists call it the final sentence. The, the, the second chapter of, I think technically it's four, ends with, I wondered why she was scared. Boom. And then the next one, Mr. Quint is dead. So he's, he's very good at that and that's very modern. And it is a good story. I mean, the characterization's good. Uh, I like the girl. Um, and her forlorn love, misplaced and forlorn love for the, the master um, is, is good. It's a nice touch. Quint's um, pushy, chippy, um, claiming airs and graces that in Victorian society he would not have been allowed. He was only, he's only a servant, and yet he borrows the master's clothes, you know. This is a terrible, uppity thing to do. Uh, and you can just imagine him, his, um, his character, even from this. Mrs. Gross is nice. The two kids, well, they haven't really come through yet. They're just kind of beatific personalities, presences. But she's great. And I think the other thing that's good about this is this the first visitation, the first um, vision of Quint in the tower, though we don't know it's Quint at that time, is she's walking through this beautiful parkland on a glorious summer evening. And I think it would have been, we've got the gothic house, you know, gothic fiction, got the gothic old house, we've got the servants, we've got the loneliness, you know, that's all gothic, gothic, gothic. And, and he even makes fun of that because 
he, he in in one of them he wonders um, she wonders James wonders through his uh, governess that um is there a secret? Is there a mystery? Is there a mystery of Adolfo? So he's playing with the gothic genre there, but what he's, how he subverts it in this case, at least is only, maybe it's just a little bit, is uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful summer evening and he's very good at conjuring that. So yeah, there's lots good about this. I think it's a good story. You can see why it's a classic. I just wish he would write more plainly. You know, I'm a fan of gothic sentences really, but, um, what I like is, being honest, a main, a main clause with a couple of extra clauses either after it or before it or, you know what they call it, uh, hypotaxic, where you tag uh, sentences and clauses together. But this is just like bombing them with interruptions. Anyway... I'm only saying that because I'm reading it out. And if I wasn't, I probably wouldn't have noticed it. It's my mother again. Actually, it isn't. Ha ha ha. Um, yeah, okay, that's it. So um, I, I'll keep on churning them out, don't worry. Promotional bit. You know, you can sign up to Substack. If you look in the show notes, you will see that you can sign up. And that means uh, I capture you. Because you, at the moment, are anonymous to me. You are just one of the 8,500 people who download it every week. But if you join on Substack, you join going on 300 now of people who I actually know who you are, which is good. It's good for me, and I can actually communicate directly with you should I ever choose to, though I haven't so far. And you get a bonus stuff if you do the paid thing. You don't have to do the paid thing. You can do the free thing and sign up on Substack as well. I'm trying to promote my own stories, as you may have picked up. Um, you can get a download of my free audio story, The Dalston Vampire. So I think you've, that, that allows you to judge whether I put my, whether I can walk the walk as well as talk the talks. Here I am at the end of these, taking apart these masters of the ghost and horror and gothic genre and criticizing them. And like, you know, who the heck am I to do that? So you can listen to my book, my story. It's a short story. And uh, you can go, yeah, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or you can think, oh, goodness me, he's taken on board all these lessons and produced a magnificently scary story that keeps me on the edge of my seat and has a lovely twist in the tale. So I like to think that's what I've done with the Dalston Vampire. You can't buy the Dalston Vampire. You can only get it free. So show notes, click, download. I capture you forever. All right. But in a lovely way, you know. I won't do anything nasty to you, I promise. Music, some come back by the Hartwood Institute. They've just released, Jonathan has just released uh, Witch Season on uh, Bandcamp, which I bought in Evs, and uh, I was rocking away to it. It's a second story, because we've got this kind of relationship, you know, that uh, mutually supportive relationship, I think. And um, he has done a, a, a tune called Kroglin Grange, which is based on my story, The Kroglin Vampire. I, I've got The Kroglin Vampire, The Dolson Vampire, and Highgate Vampire, and those are not accidental, those three. They're quite different stories, although The Dolson and The Kroglin are more similar. And I'm just going to keep adding to them. Anyway, final music is A Drowning by Dvoinik. And the, if you like that kind of ominous stuff that I do, Defo, Michael was telling me he's bringing out an album. So uh, ominous yourself off. I think. 
Okay, that's it anyway. All right, uh, more soon. Take care. Hope you're not locked down too hard, or if you are, you're enjoying it.
that was a drowning by Dvoinik, and this one here is the legend of Hell House by the Harwood Institute. You see, I've become a DJ, albeit an evil, haunted one. She's a metal medium, and I want that line of approach. Oh, 
being hot stuff when you were 15, but now you're shit.
I'm not leaving until I know. Lawrence. I am not leaving until I know. It's a form of energy invisible to the human eye body. This energy can be expanded far beyond the confines of the body, where it can create mechanical, chemical, physical effects, sounds, the movement of objects and the like, such as we experience. Now, the energy I talk about is a field of electromagnetic radiation. EMR. All living organisms emit this energy. Such power must saturate its environment. Any wonder then that Hell House is the way it is? Consider the destructive mental and physical residual energy which has been poured into its interior. In essence, the house is a giant battery, the residual energy of which must inevitably be tapped by those who enter. But can't you see this energy is what we survive without death? No, Miss Tanner. The residue I speak of has nothing to do with surviving personalities. or any of the other entities that you believe yourself to be in contact with. No. It's one thing, and one thing only. Mindless, directionless power. You're wrong, Dr. Barrett. You're so wrong. You cannot destroy a spirit. All you want to do is send it from one hell to another. No, Miss Turner. I'm right. This afternoon, my machine will fill the house with a massive countercharge of electromagnetic radiation, which will oppose the polarity of the atmosphere, reverse, dissipate it. And Hell House will be exorcised.